politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to guard our liberties, to fight for something new, to try something new. Those of you who don't want to keep banging your heads against the wall, uh, pursuing the same failed strategies, this is your podcast, Sierra Podcast. Uh, your host, Daniel Hurwitz, back in the house today. And you know, I really need to rename the show Conservative Review because the terms conservative and liberal really have lost their meaning. We now live in a time where the divide is not between conservative and liberal. It's between those who recognize that the system, Western former democracies are irremediably corrupt, fraudulent, and fascistic. And and when I say that, I mean not just the government proper, but the fact that the government manipulated everything over time. All the aspects of the private sector, which really aren't private anymore. And then those who just think, nah, you know, it's kind of the same all day. I'll just run the same ads as a candidate, as a legislator, do the same things. You have to recognize that it's irremediably broken and strategize accordingly. Today we're going to have a special whistleblower on demonstrating someone who worked boots on the ground, saw it with her own eyes. Pfizer's clinical trial was completely built on fraud, straight up fraud, violated every single protocol for a clinical trial. She could just speak for the center that she ran. It's one of the you know many centers, but there's no reason to believe it was the only center for which this stuff happened on. So we're going to have her on in a moment. But I just wanted you guys to understand that you know, we've been talking about this theme that Republicans are always a day late, a dollar short. Well, no, Republicans are frauds, but conservatives are a day late, a dollar short. And the reality is, when it comes to health care, we've never had a free market. That's the issue. All the things that we said to do that they're now kind of, oh, let's do this, it should have been done a long time ago. But because it wasn't, We didn't have a private sector, and they created a monopoly, and they were able to get away with this. Normally, a free market would not sustain fraudulent therapeutics and things like that. But when government over the years creates a monopoly so there can't be any oversight, even from a market force, so then now what are we going to do? Oh, well, I don't want to regulate. I don't want to tell private sector what to do. That's not good enough. We need to start thinking about what do you do when there's no safety net now for the people, when Pfizer could do whatever they want and have their product shunted upon the people, even short of a mandate, certainly with a mandate, and we don't know if the thing is doggone poison. So we're going to get into that today. Um, One of the ways of rectifying this monopoly is actually supporting those that support us and not the cartel. Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative wireless provider. Um, They have a 100% U.S.-based customer service team. Their plans fit any budget of yours, and they use the same towers as the major carriers, so you have the same service, but better uh, customer service. Um, I know their, their, uh, their customer service is really terrific. 
Uh, it's very rare that you get Americans to actually speak to on the phone. So go to patriotmobile.com slash CR or call 972-PATRIOT to get free activation with offer code CR. They have a special discount for veterans and first responders because they actually love faith, family, tradition. Unlike the other companies, it's patriotmobile.com slash CR or call 972-PATRIOT. So we're going to start to see as time goes on the drip drip of how everything we said turned out to be correct that the shots weren't effective, that they were um, dangerous, it's going to come out slowly but surely. We see the CDC is now saying that they recommend for people under 40, males under 40 especially, an eight-week interval between shots. Okay, you literally still have mandates in place forcing people to get something that they now admit is dangerous enough, right? This this thing is the safest thing around. Oh, well, actually, you might want eight weeks between shots, especially for young males. So first of all, what does that tell you in general with the shots that you need to put on such an interval? And especially the fact that they're flagging youngsters, young males, And then you still have mandates that won't even accommodate that eight-week interval. Okay, so, so you have all these mandates. Let's say someone embarks on it. They'll say, well, you're not in compliance. How could – I don't understand how Republicans don't have an all-out budget fight in the Senate and all the governors to say we're suspending this based on CDC's own stuff now. It's not like you have to reinvent the wheel. But I am not, I don't know about you, I am not seeing any elected Republican anywhere ratcheting up the fight against the clot shots with all the new information. You have um, the FDNY, the New York Fire Department, right? very famous, very iconic. The union leaders are now demanding investigation into the jabs. Three firefighters just dropped dead. Lieutenant Joseph Mailo, 53, found dead in a, in, in, in a firehouse after a shift. Jesse Gerhard, 33, dead at a firehouse in, house in Far, Rock, Far Rockaway, New York. And then um, Vincent Malvo, 31, died on December 2nd at the training academy on Randall's Island. You know, what's going on? That's a significant amount of people in a very short time. The vaccine is a concern with our members because it's something new that's being put into our bodies. It could be a factor. Okay, that is the union leader of FDNY, Jim McCarthy. I mean, this is coming out in the open. This is insane. And it's still being mandated. We did have... The injunction from the Tampa federal judge on the military, we'll see how deep that goes and if that actually makes a difference on the ground. But Republicans don't even want to fight this. This is the issue now. It's not even so much the mandates in a vacuum or the mass on children. It's that we have just poisoned almost every adult, every senior with something that we now know is massively problematic, even at the most conservative estimate. You look at, I, I've been meaning to get to this, 
But the Israeli health ministry, this is the citadel of Pfizer. This was the test ground. And they um, they put out, where is this? They put out here a survey about a little bit more than 2,000 people. So they took a randomized survey, 2,000 people within 21 to 30 days, you know, within 30 days of um, taking their booster. It was specifically the booster. Okay. How many suffered adverse reactions? Okay. This is a survey. Within 21 to 30 days, 58% of men and 75% of women reported at least one side effect. And you're going to find a theme throughout the Israeli survey. Very interestingly, women consistently, and this was in the Pfizer data, this is in VAERS as well, women that have more adverse reactions, I don't know the reason for it. COVID, the spike protein, seems to harm men more. But with the vaccine, it seems like it's more women, whatever. 58% of men, 75% of women. Now, again, most of these are minor. We're going to get into the major ones in a minute. But even that, I mean, wait a minute. You're forcing someone on something that, you know, this is not a, a vitamin D pill, okay? That you're not going to notice anything from it. Vitamin C pill. There's one thing to mandate that. But already 58, 75% of women. And we're not talking about just, I had the runs for a day. 35% of men and 51% of women had difficulty performing daily activities as a result. So again, even, even if it's not systemic, but there's a tremendous amount of smoke there before we even get to the fire. 51% of women who got a booster had difficulty performing a task. 32% of men and 53% of women reported weakness, tiredness, 18% of men, 35% of women reported headache. Similar amount with muscle ache. 24% of women reported shaking and high temperature. Um, almost 5% of respondents reported neurological complaints. These are huge numbers. Remember, we talk about 5%. 5%. Neurological issues. And again, this is one of one dose. This is not in totality. This is just the third shot. You look at America. What are we up to? 550 million doses worth? So if there's a 5% rate, okay, that's like what? 27, 28 million neurological 10% of women under the age of 54 reported menstrual changes, of which 31% sought medical treatment. So this is huge. Now I want to get into a few of the major ones, but first our next segment is sponsored by Startmail. You need to understand free email services like Gmail and Yahoo aren't free. You pay with your privacy. They will spy on you. And do everything. And, and look, for someone like me, I really need Startmail because 
you better believe they have a list of people who are a threat if they say they're collecting this on on um you know dhs terrorism threat for putting out their view of misinformation on covid you better believe i'm on that list i'm clearly on that list if we want to you know plan anything political opposition you know it's being spied upon stop using spy mail and start using start mail it keeps my email private period every email is encrypted um big tech can't read it scan it analyze it government can't snoop around it um it deletes everything when you delete it it's deleted forever and they use your their own ser- servers and they're not based in america which is actually a good thing unfortunately you know in the, in in this day and age um, you could generate shareable Elias emails, multiple number of Eliases. You just create an Elias if you have like junk mail or whatever. Um, I really, I, I've I've used the Eliases a lot for different things. So I don't trust big tech. Neither should you start securing your email privacy with Startmail. Sign up today, today and you'll get 50% off your first year. Go to startmail.com slash conservative. Set up your account. Mine is Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com. You could email me there any day. That's start with a T at the end, S-T-A-R-T mail.com slash conservative for 50% off your first year. So just to complete this Israeli study, and then we'll get to our uh, our guest here. Um, so they found that t- um, 25% of people with pre-existing autoimmune disorders Depression or anxiety reported worsening of their symptoms. What does that tell you? A flare-up in autoimmune. I've heard this a lot with people that have kind of celiac type of things, colon issues, the GI issues, um, some of those GI autoimmune issues that are seem to be very common nowadays for curious reasons why our generation seems to be plagued with things that previous generations didn't have. It makes you wonder. But you have a flare-up. 0.5% experience Bell's palsy. So you could take a look to, you know, say you had a bad headache for a day and that's te- technically a neurological thing. And you don't think, okay, it's not such a big deal. Bell's palsy. I mean, sometimes it's temporary, but that could, I mean, that's a par- paralysis of the face. Could be permanent too. 0.5%. Do you understand what that is? It's not point. It's point five percent on one dose. Again, you take the number of doses, extrapolate that in America. That gives you two point seven million doses that could have caused that, based on the Israeli survey. This is hard data. Okay, it's not clinical diagnosis. It's not confirmed. Confirmed, but that's what they're saying when the Israeli health ministry. You know, um surveyed them it's not our job to come up with the data to debunk this once you have such strong safety signals it's their job to take it off the market and study what went wrong and that's where i want to get to our next guest so in order to introduce our guest i just want to make something very clear here human beings are not chess pieces on a board We talked about this a little bit with the JAMA Ivermectin trial. I'm not into double-blinded, randomized, controlled trials in a vacuum. They're, They're really good for what they do. But I actually, in general, trust more a preponderance of evidence. If you just have 
a bunch of doctors desperate to treat patients. They have nothing to gain and everything to lose. And they're like, man, this thing really works. And the mechanism of action makes sense. To me, even though that doesn't sound very scientific, that actually tells you a lot more than an RCT in a vacuum without knowing the details. In theory, RCTs could be a gold standard. But the difference between theory and practice is that in theory it could work, but in practice it doesn't. It's kind of Yogi Berra's famous line there. And especially when an RCT is being done by something so political, and you know the ones that have the money to do massive trials are the ones that have an agenda. In this case, Pfizer. They understood that they were going to get that thing approved by all costs. Now, it's not so easy to do a trial on human beings that quickly. You have in vitro, you have animal trials. Human beings have free will. They're very dynamic beings. There's a lot of logistics that goes into this. We've had on David Weissman before. Dr. Weissman, he's, a, he's an expert on the science behind the trials. He could tell you the scientific flaws. But our next guest, really the only whistleblower of among the trial coordinators, Brooke Jackson. She's a clinical trial coordinator. To be very clear, she is not a doctor, not a scientist. We're not going to discuss immunosuppression and ADE and the different problems. But she comes with a story that fills in this piece of the puzzle we've all been missing. What a clinical trial, co trial coordinator does is deal with the actual logistics of how to run the trial, the, the human capital, the people administering it, the record keeping. If that's not done right, you could have the most brilliant scientist in the wor world. It doesn't matter. You have bad data. Uh, she's worked in the clinical trials field for over 18 years. She's a clinical research auditor, certified clinical research professional. She served as the coordinator, regional coordinator for Ventavia. It was one of Pfizer's contractors that ran these clinical tri trial centers. During September 2020, during that critical phase three trial, she ran the Texas sites around the Fort Worth area. Now she is suing an Eastern District of Texas federal court, suing Pfizer and uh, Ventavia and Icon, which is another one of the contractors, for fraudulent claims and wrongful termination. She is essentially alleging that Pfizer clinical trials are riddled with fraud and abuse of the scientific process through and through. If you remember, in uh, November, she went to the British Medical Journal to spill some of the details, but she has a lot more details she's going to share with us today. Brooke, thanks so much for joining us today, and thank you for coming forward. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to to tell my story, I've been waiting to do this for, for so long. And finally, um, I guess I'm being given, being given that opportunity by, by, by so many. So thank you. So before we get to the specific allegations, I want to give a big picture view of where you sit and what you do and why it's so important. You, you, you said to me before, a very interesting comment, that give me a trial design and I could design it to get any outcome I want. Talk about some of the inputs that go in just logistically that could make all the difference in the outcome of a trial. Daniel, there's, there's so many, you know, uh, that, that I could talk about. I think for, for this trial specifically, what my former 
company did very well was market their study. They were very good at advertising open spots in, in Pfizer's study. We were in the middle of a, a medical district, a hospital, lots of uh, physician offices, et cetera. Texas is a very diverse state. So we have, you know, the, the demographic was, was diverse. Um, the outlook on clinical research was typically favorable. So it was just the, <clears throat> the perfect opportunity for, for Ventavia to quickly enroll in Pfizer's study, which was, was what they needed. That there was just such a rush to enroll into the study, and, and that was obviously pushed to allow Pfizer to get to market first. So that, that, that's what you worked on. So I want to get into some of the specifics of what you're alleging and how that clearly bridges that gap. Again, this that gap we're talking about that it's not like a little bit of gray area. Um, before I brought you on, I read the Israeli uh, Ministry of Health, their survey of 2,200 people got the booster, and it's you can't miss it. I mean, it's like, you know, 5% had neurological issues. Uh, the menstrual issues are are insane. Like there's no way that could have been missed. And they had to have known this. And I want you to, you know, the goal today is before we leave that the audience understands exactly how this was able to happen and how they're able to cover it up. And, you know, the long-term implications of that. First, I just want to um, say this, this uh, interview is sponsored by Birch Gold, our longtime partner with inflation at 40-year highs, our government spending money like there's no tomorrow, government servicing debt with high higher than interest on treasury bonds. The government owes less on its mountain of debt, but you know what that means? You have negative interest rates. You are sliding back your income every single day. Protect your savings now. Hedge against inflation with gold from Birch Gold. Um, because the government is sabotaging the value of the U.S. dollar, what I like about Birch, um, most importantly, is that they help you convert an eligible IRA or 401k into an IRA backed by real gold rather than putting it in the stock market casino. Um, the next couple of weeks, I'm working on my own taxes, and I refuse to hand over more money to the government. So if I owe more at the end, I'll dump it into an IRA and – they will help you convert that. To learn more, text Daniel to the number 989898. You'll get a no-cost, no-obligation info kit, a 20-page comprehensive guide revealing how gold and silver can protect your savings and how you could buy them under the umbrella of a tax-sheltered retirement account. So do it right now. Text the word Daniel to 989898. All right, so Brooke, just want to get back here again. You worked for Ventavia. That was one of the major contractors that actually conducted the trial. So when we see data, oh, 91% reduction, you know, cross tabs, this amount of people enrolled, this amount of people got COVID later, this amount of people had experienced adverse reactions. Um, you're alleging straight up in the federal complaint that there was fabrication and falsification of blood draw information, vital signs, signatures, and other essential clinical trial data. You're not just saying that they violated protocols, safety, privacy. You are saying that too. You have that information. But you're going straight up and saying it's fabrication. Could you give us some specifics of what you saw that September? Yeah, it wasn't just fabrication of data. It was falsification of data. It was enrolling of 
participants that were not eligible based on, you know, prior medical history, not reporting adverse events, serious adverse events. And oftentimes there was a delay in, in, in following up on those. So not reporting them at all or, or, or just a delay. I remember specifically one serious adverse event that I, I came upon when I was auditing some of the charts and this, this person <clears throat> reported a serious adverse event and it had been 11 days since there was any follow-up on that serious adverse event. And with serious adverse events, those, those are required to be reported to the sponsor in 24 hours. So they were, they were 10 days late and, and just bringing the serious adverse event to the attention of Pfizer. <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, straight up, like you said, falsified data, the fabrication of data. When, when I brought it to the attention of, and this was, this was daily. I mean, my reporting to my managers started on day two of me being there. So the first day I worked was actually <clears throat> a, a holiday. So I wasn't in the office. So on day two, when I, when I walked into the clinic we started talking about the things that needed to change. <clears throat> um, so, so it was daily that, that I was speaking to upper management about what I was finding. And that at, at one point I, I was, <clears throat> I was hopeful there was a meeting that we, we had one morning and my recommendation was to excuse me, immediately stop enrolling into the study so that we could quantify what errors um, had been found so we could alert Pfizer to the things that they needed to know about. One was specifically the, the unblinding of all the patients that had been enrolled to date. So approximately, you know, there were 1,200 at the time, I believe. Um, so So... Could, could you explain the unblinding a little bit? Was that just your facility or everywhere? So that was at the three locations uh, in, in Texas. So there was one in Fort Worth, one in Keller, and then one in Houston. So I was over the two that were that were close, which was the Fort Worth and Keller location. The second regional director was was overseeing the the staff at the Houston location. So <clears throat> all of the all of the patients that were enrolled in those three sites had been unblinded. I want to, I want to point out that, at, at, you know, several months in, you know, the, the patients were purposefully unblinded, um, by Pfizer, but the unblinding that I'm talking about happened prior to that. Um, and why it's important is, you know, I, I'm careful, and, and thank you for pointing out earlier that I'm not, um, you know, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, but I know that when when patients are blinded, there, there's a reason for that, and that is so to prevent bias from being injected into the study. And it was, you know, especially important in, in this study just because of the way that the trial trial was designed. But but going back, you know, I, I was hopeful, you know, on uh, around the, the 17th of September, they decided that they would pause enrollment and we would, you know, start, <clears throat> start going through these charts more carefully involve the sponsor just because of, you know, what, what was being found again, the unblinding, 
the the storage of the vaccine was um, not not being it, it wasn't being monitored and it was with um, out of range for months based on the protocols specified temperature range. So it was hopeful. It was out you know? of range for months, and and th- I know this is not your job to theorize on the science, but theoretically, what that could make a difference is it is it could lose lose its potency. And now, normally, it's a bad thing. In this case, it could be it it kind of neutralized it, so you didn't get as many adverse events. But if someone gets a shot fresh with the right temperature, maybe it's more potent and causes more problems. I mean, this is something we need to figure out. But your your point is. A trial is only a tri- an RCT is only good because you adhere to the protocols. They clearly did not adhere to it. You also mentioned that Ventavia, um, they had some of their own employee family members enroll in the trial, and they are part of that data. Explain to me that mm-hmm. and the problems with that. <clears throat> yeah, the the vaccine uh, per the protocol was to be stored. Um, you know. I don't remember right off the top of my head exactly what what those what those numbers were, but but we were out of out of that range for for months. We were just not monitoring the temperature of of the vaccine. So for per Pfizer's own protocol, we should have immediately quarantined that vaccine and contacted them, and then they would determine you know if if the vaccine was. Um, Yeah, you know, could 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 still be used. So, um, yeah, that and uh, to to your question just now, the family members that were enrolled in the study, the new CEO of Ventavia was in the. It, she actually is still in the study, and her children are as well. And I didn't, I didn't recognize. That at first, I mean, I knew I knew Ventavia was enrolling family members. They were employing family members at the time of the enrollment pause um, in the middle of September. They were bringing friends and family members in to quality control the data. And I, I just I was shocked. I just I just couldn't believe it. So, Brooke, are you telling me that in all your years, 18 years of doing clinical trials, you coordinate and manage them, you've never seen where the actual families of the employees, certainly those that, that are running the company in charge of the trial, getting involved and actually participating in the trial? Absolutely not. It's actually in Pfizer's own protocol as part of the exclusionary criteria that, that no family members, friends are to be enrolled in the study. And this isn't, I mean, you can take my word for it, but you can certainly go to Ventavia's website and as, as the new CEO, Marty Anderson is, is introducing herself. She, she tells you in her, in her intro bio that, um, she was a clinical trial participant herself. What's concerning there is, is one, they, they had no regard to, you know, follow, following the protocol, which, you know, goes back to the, you know, just the, the gold standard and the type of study that they're running. I mean, you have to follow these um, these guidelines. You have to, all patients have to meet the inclusion criteria and, and, and none of the exclusion criteria. And that was frequently ignored by Ventavia. Uh, I, I found, I mean, I, I hate to put a number on, I hate to quantify it, but 
many, I would say more than 25 patients in that, that I audited did not meet inclusion criteria or they met some, some, can you give examples of like what type of uh, exclusion criteria? Sure. I mean, um, uh, prohibited medications. Some of the participants that I remember looking at were on a medication that would exclude them from participating. Um, medical history as well. Something may exclude them from participating. Um, going back to, uh, you know, the new CEO, she was working at Ventavia. You cannot be a clinical trial participant if you're working there. Um, and, and, and the first question that popped into my mind when, when I saw that, you know, it was her and knew that her children enrolled in the study as well, it made me think, well, did they get to, did they get to pick which, which arm of the study they were, they were in? Did they get to choose getting Mm. the vaccine? And and let me take that a step further. Let's say they knew they were, got the vaccine. Do you really trust the CEO of the thing that, that just stands to benefit from it, that they're going to go and say, yeah, I didn't get my period for the last two months. Um, exactly. You know, or on the efficacy side, yeah, I I got COVID. No, you're you're gonna you're gonna cover that up. I mean, that's insane. I didn't know that the CEO of Intavia. That is wild. So when people are looking at data, everyone loves data because it's so easy. You know, eight sure. is more than five, right? Everyone. I mean, in, in in media and political media, they always love political polls because it's the easiest thing to write it out. You know, he has 30 and he has 20, right? So everyone loves seeing a sheet. But what you're providing to the public is the data doesn't come from the sky. It doesn't like, you know, okay, there were eight of this, three of this, these adverse events, or, you know, this number of people got COVID in the trial arm, this number of people. You're saying from head to toe, there was bias, unblinding, the CO participates, the failure to remove ineligible patient's data from the trial, failure to maintain the temperature, could you discuss a little bit the failure to monitor patients after injection as required? What typically happens? So they come into the center, you administer the thing. How do you follow up? Could you just, just I, I never thought about this, just basic logistics of how to know who did and didn't get COVID afterwards and who did and did not experience adverse events? That's that's uh, that's tricky. Ventavia... Ventavia was, was severely understaffed when I, when I was over these clinical trial sites, especially in, in the Fort Worth, Texas location, we had five exam rooms and sometimes only four, five coordinators. Now, when you're seeing 40 plus patients a day, it's impossible to make sure that you're conducting the visit with patient safety following the protocol, those guidelines and minds. It's impossible. So I, I, I'm 100% confident that things were missed. Adverse events were not reported. They just were not able to follow up with the patients like they were supposed to. So that's where the fabrication of data comes in. When we were, when we were monitoring and auditing these charts, if there was a data point that was missing, they would just fill it in. They would just put something there. Wait, you saw people filling in things randomly. I watched a clinical research coordinator put in, and it was only one time, but I watched her fabricate a blood pressure reading because it was not collected at the time of the study visit. Yes. 
Yes. So like it's a minor point. It's a, we mm-hmm. got to fill this out. We got to get this done. <clears throat> we got to go through with this. And and that's what they think in their mind. But you put this all together, it starts adding up. I, I think what's also important, if, if I'm getting the gist of what you're saying, aside from just straight fabrication and fraud, you know, everyone's like, oh, they want the double-blinded RCTs. Everyone wants that. But like like I started out with human beings are not chess pieces on a board. It's not it's easier said than done. And the fact that these things take years is not just a function of overbearing federal regulation, which I'm certainly not a fan of overbearing regulation, but it's it's just as at a minimum, if you have something like, for example, Ivermectin has a 40-year safety profile, so you just want to know if it works, you could cut some corners and say, yeah, maybe theoretically this is not so great, we'll rush it, because worse comes to worse, we know it's safe anyway. But when you're coming with something totally novel, very dangerous mechanism of action, having your body produce an unknown number of spike proteins in an unknown number of locations for an unknown period of time, right? So that you really got to get this right but we got to rush it because we got to get it out. Pandemic got to get it out. So you're saying it's not so easy to find the people to monitor it, to keep up with it. And then on that train of thought, could you talk about um, who administered? We talked a little bit about the nature of the people getting into the trial. What about the nature of people administering it? Well, that's, that's defined in the protocol too. But again, there was such a rush, such a push by, by Pfizer directly and by Ventavia to enroll, enroll, enroll the faster, you know, and the the faster they could do that, the better. And, you know, I I don't think that Ventavia cared about, you know, um, the reasons behind the rush that, you know, um, we were going through something and, and they were worried about the money and uh, Ventavia was, was mainly paid on a per patient basis. So every single patient that they enrolled into the study was money in their pocket. Um, I, I'm just, I'm certain that that money was, was the, the driving factor for Ventavia yep. for Pfizer, it was being first to market. And, you know, I, I am just so, so disappointed in, in both of them. I went to work for Ventavia, hopeful that, you know, I was going to be part of this company and, and help them, help them, you know, and bring my years of experience. And, um, yeah, it's just been, it's just been a nightmare since, since So now when I picture vaccination, Anything being injected, I picture at a minimum a nurse, a phlebotomist, someone who got training, aspirating a needle, understanding the needle. Um, talk to me a little bit about what you saw in terms of who administered the shots and also the nature of the needles themselves. Yeah, that that speaks to the rush, right? The understaffing, the rush, they were putting people in these positions of preparing the vaccine, administering the vaccine, um, ensuring that it was stored appropriately in this position that they were unqualified for. When I started working, uh, you know, the first, you know, first day that I was there getting to know my staff, shadowing them just to see how the clinic clinic flowed. 
and and this was one of the things that that really stuck out to me was the receptionist at Ventavia was the one that was also responsible for being the unblinded vaccinator. So the design of the protocol, so so to prevent unblinding or unmasking, was the only one that should have known what the participants were getting. So there was that one person. There should have been a backup um, at each of the locations, you know, in, in case this one unblinded person was out, there was a backup. Um, but she was the receptionist. And in between her reception duties, she would be the one responsible for preparing and injecting these, these study participants. And when I went just to pull her CV to look at, you know, um, her qualifications and her background, she had zero medical experience at all. She had donated some of her time to, I think, a, a, like a, a children's hospital or something. I can't, I can't recall, but donated her time um, there. And before coming to Ventavia as a receptionist and then becoming, you know, this person that, you know, was injecting these people, she worked at a restaurant. And again, zero zero medical training put in a put in a place at Ventavia that was was so critical um but that that that's just what I saw that was just how how they worked the unblinded vaccinator at my second location in in Keller had been a medical assistant but had zero protocol training and, and this was you know, she, she had already injected, I can't tell you how many, how many participants, but zero protocol training. And that's in some of the documents that, that I provided to the FDA and provided to the DOJ as part of, part of my lawsuit. <clears throat> um, I had the evidence right in my hand to show them that, that things were not being done correctly. You know, um, it's just, it's, it scares me. It makes me upset. Um, you know, going through all of the data that I have, you know, something called me last night to, to open up my laptop and I did. And what I found, like, I'm, I'm, I haven't slept, I haven't slept in, in almost two days now. And somebody, I, I don't know who to, who to ask for help, but somebody has got to stop Mentavia from enrolling patients in any more clinical trials. These people's lives are in danger. Well, you're saying there's more coming down the pipeline. Absolutely. 100%. I In terms yeah. of therapeutics, in terms of vaccines? But, both, but mainly vaccines. Ventavia, wow. Ventavia Research Group. Spread and butter are vaccines. And they are a preferred site of many pharma companies, Pfizer specifically. Um, the last time that I looked, Ventavia was enrolling in 40 clinical trials. 40. Wow. And these, these studies are a mess, Daniel. I've never, I've never seen anything like that. And I don't, I don't know. I've, I've, I feel like I've exhausted all of my options and who I can actually tell that could possibly do something about it. 
and I wish I could tell you I have a bunch of people I could bring you to and we're going to blow this up. But honestly, I don't. And I think you're doing the right thing just trying to the federal lawsuit and then parallel not waiting for that to speak out, to speak out now. Um, and again, you know, it's everything you're saying. It, it makes sense now why we're having problems. A lot of people have written a lot of smart pieces on just the injection mm-hmm. itself. It matters. Is it going to the bloodstream, the muscle? You know, exactly. I don't know how to inject a needle. If I go and try to do that, who knows where it's going to land? And, you know, and there's that, a reason that, that, that these protocols are written the way that they are. There's a reason that based on your body type and your weight that you are to be injected with a certain size needle. And I know I have been criticized, you know, quite a bit on these things that, that may just show sloppiness, Ventavia, yep. like the, the, <clears throat> the needles just being thrown in a plastic biohazard bag. Well, that matters. It, it matters because my staff walked right by these needles that were left used and open in a plastic bag rather than an appropriate container. My patients were sat next to these used needles. <clears throat> I walked by these used needles. It matters and it speaks to Ventavia's overall failures. And like I was mentioning before, you know, last night when I, I just, I was, I was laying awake and something just said, go to your laptop. And I pulled up my laptop, Daniel, and I just happened to read an old email and the email was talking about some things that were found during a monitoring visit. So a monitoring visit is, is a, a visit that would be conducted by either the pharma company themselves or the contract research organization. And in this case, you know, Icon was was who was managing um, that for Pfizer. But this monitoring report, I opened it and I started to look at it. And the first thing that, that stuck out to me was death. And when I, when I read that and I started looking, what do you mean death? I'm not, I'm not following. Death. It was a death that the monitor found during a visit to, to go over the data that the site had not reported to the institutional review board or the IRB as well. What does that mean a death? Like within a week or two of someone getting the shot at that facility, there's a ported fatality. I don't have the site level data, so I don't know. I have the monitoring report that is talking about one specific subject. And this monitor is requesting that the site report the death to the IRB. A death is something that you report immediately. And a, a, a site should never have to be asked to report something. They should have done that immediately. So you're saying this speaks volumes when you look at the numbers of how many people died. <laughs> um, I, I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting. You know the number immediately in their original one, but I know six month follow up was <laughs> actually more people did die in the trial group. It was 20 in the trial group, and that includes those that eventually got the shot. 14 among those that stayed placebo never got the shot. But whatever those numbers are, you're saying they're all – it's a piece of paper. It's all a final tabulation that the public sees, but all the work that goes into that 
um, leads you to believe, believe that none of it could be trusted. Um, what, 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 what scares me about what you're saying is this, and, you know, just to frame it for the audience here. You look in totality of what's going on, and it's not like, yeah, we're kind of in a rush. We'll do a few things that are kind of super protective, but we don't really need them. We'll do no, you're saying this is like doing heart surgery from the back. It's like you've never seen this. You you it's 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 so unethical. Um, and then scientifically it really has bearings on all the results, most of these factors you're talking about. Once they tasted that for, forbidden fruit, Ventavia and these other contractors for Pfizer and Pfizer themselves. They're not going back to the old paradigm. And why should they? If you think about it, they made $55 billion last year. They got their product marketed, distributed by government, embraced, imbued as like a societal virtue like nothing ever before, mandated. I mean, it worked. Crime pays. Why would they not repeat this, um, you know, coming up the next time? All they have to say is we have a large sample, RCT. And look at how amazing, let's just say RSV. That's one of the things they're working on. Look at how, how amazing this RSV vaccine is. Well, you have an amazing double-blinded, randomized controlled trial. Guess what? Every pediatrician, every hospital is going to mandate it. They're going to say this is part of the child schedule. There is no safety behind that. So, Brooke, I got to ask you this. What you're describing to me is like, I don't know, a baseball player coming to a practice one day and instead of hitting the ball with a bat, they kick it with their foot. It, it, it's something you can't miss. Are are there other uh, you, you, managers you you or coordinators that have spoken out? Well, no. Well, we know they haven't spoken out, but I mean that have spoken to you privately. Yes, they have. Yes, from from Ventavia, in total, I and this is including myself. There there are five of us. There are five of us. And when you say Ventavia, does that mean those Texas locations or yes. other locations around the world? That's just at the Texas locations. Do you know how many locations there were in the U.S. in general? I believe there was um, 153, I believe. I can look, but um, around Okay, so, so, so it was a lot. Um, and you, you could just speak to those Texas locations that you worked on. So you said you have five other people come to you. Have you, have you had anyone come to you privately from another trial or contractor or subcontractor? Not that have worked specifically on clinical trials. I do have people reach out to me every day. Um, a group of nurses just recently from the VA healthcare system, um, I, I I got got a, a private message from from this group of of nurses that are concerned and asking me you know for for advice and <clears throat> so I I have people reach out all the time but but nobody specific to you know these these clinical trials that are being run and anybody can you know you just mentioned RSV and Ventavia is is enrolling in probably three or four RSV clinical trials right now. You can go to clinicaltrials.gov and, and pull up Ventavia. I did it. I did it last night trying to to find the Moderna study that they're participating in and and you can't find it easily. You have to you have to do a little digging. But you know these 
these RSV studies are, are coming up, you know, every vaccine, COVID vaccine candidate that um, is being looked at right now, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson, Johnson, Novavax, Ventavia has their hand in every single one of them. And I've been, you know, really focused on, on Pfizer because that's the one that they were doing at the time that I was there and that I, that I had all this data for, but you know, since they also have the most political clout, clearly. Sure. Right. Um, but now I'm, I've, there's been leaked documents. I've been given documents and as I'm going through this site level data, which you're never going to see, you'll never see the site level data, what the public will see, what the FDA has been sued for are the cleaned up version of what's at the site level. Well, wait, have- can, you, can you describe the cleaned up version versus what you're saying? You're saying even if you have FOIA or something similar to release those documents, which aren't public, but they have, you're saying that still won't reveal the scope of the problem. Why not? Exactly. I mean, you're going to so you, you explain that a little see- bit. Sure. It's it's very it's very complicated. It's very complex. I'm working on right now um, with with some people to to get a website up for myself so I can share these documents with the public and I can explain them, explain them, excuse me, in a way that that's easily, you know, um, understood by someone that that doesn't have experience in in clinical trials and the way that those are run. Um, You know, you spoke about Dr. Wiseman. I spent hours on the phone with, with Dr. Wiseman helping him understand um, and, and other and other scientists that are that are looking at at this data too, understand how data is collected from a site level. Um, <clears throat> so just to, to give kind of an idea, Ventavia specifically, when they're seeing a patient, every data point is captured on paper. So we have what's called source documents, and that's from, you know, date of birth, age, height, weight, sex, comorbidities, medical history, uh, concomitant medications they're on. It follows the clinical trial design from from start to finish, but everything's captured on on paper. So at visit one, you you collect the time of the informed consent, which version they they signed, what their height was, what their weight was, um, which arm they got the vaccine in. I mean, it's everything is captured on paper. <clears throat> From that paper source, all of that information is transcribed over into an electronic platform that that Pfizer uses. So there's there's that opens up the possibility for there to be errors in that transcription, right? So what happens next is once that trial data is entered into their electronic platform, they'll have somebody from ICON come to the site and they'll look at the paper source and they'll compare it to what was entered into the electronic data capture system. If there's something that, you know, for example, if a a blood pressure was, um, captured on paper as 120 over 80 and it's transcribed as 120 over 08 just because you know we're human we we make errors there would be a query issued and then the site would go back they would make sure that the written data was correct or you know if there needed to be a, a change in that blood 
blood pressure um, from what was entered on paper versus electronically, it's changed. But there's that audit trail, right? And what I'm saying is that I've looked at the data that's been released by the FDA and they're called case report forms. So that electronic data that's captured, it's an electronic case report form, an ECRF. That's the clean final version that Pfizer wants you to see. Got it. So, so, so the point is you're saying even, you know, you, you got Aaron Siri, you got some of these lawyers that are working to get, um, FOIA releases um, so what we see the final tabulation, like the, the the top line. So you you could break it down by trial site, but you're mm-hmm. saying that breakdown is just for example, if they saw that day, holy smokes, we got three really serious AEs going on here, um, you know, and 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 the word comes from high up that that that's not going to go in. So that's what they're going to submit. They're going to submit what they want to submit, and that's what you'll see on the back end. Um, that is that is very scary. I mean, this whole thing is that there's just no oversight, um, no nothing. I, th- this is this is crazy. I, I, be, I before we get to, I want to get to the here and now, and you know your the blowback you got, and you know um, the responses you got, but just a couple more fine details on what you saw. You you talk about over diluting vaccine concentrates. Could you describe that and why that matters? I'm gonna. I can describe what happens why, again. Why that? Why that matters? I, I. I would feel more comfortable if you one of one of your you know, sure. physicians. One of the do- you know, one of the doctors. Yeah, describe that because I don't want that to be taken and um, and used against me and you know for a, a way for someone to discredit what I'm saying. But yeah, so um, wrong wrong size needles, the over dilution, under dilution of the vaccine. Um, what does that mean? Why would someone be doing playing around with the dilution? Well, because they don't understand. They didn't understand the ratio of vaccine and um, dilutant. They were not trained. They didn't have the experience to be doing what they were doing. They were put in a place by Ventavia because there were just not enough bodies. So what you could attest to the fact that you're saying there was a wide variance of concentrations based on a lack of experience. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. And everything, Daniel, that I'm telling you, I have internal documents. I have text messages, phone calls, audio recordings to back up everything that I'm saying. Everything you're saying, and that is being submitted in the federal lawsuit, um, Eastern District of Texas, uh, for fraudulent claims, and obviously on a personal level, wrongful termination, because you were terminated from blowing the whistle. Uh, Pfizer, Icon, and Ventavia are all named as defendants in that uh, lawsuit. So yeah, you have all the supporting work. Um, And I'm not going to put these words in your mouth, but but I'm just going to say it on my own. I think our audience could, you know, understand the wheels are turning in their brains as we're talking. The, the biggest, the most vexing issue that we are dealing with is that the more we understand the mechanism of action of this shot, it's utterly insane. So the question is, as high as the AEs likely are, it's still the majority seem to walk away from it without a problem. What's the deal? And there's one theory it's not proven. But one theory is, were there some sort of variance in concentrations? The temperature could make a difference. The concentration could make a difference, um, both in terms of the, you know, the the administrator at the site, but even in terms of the manufacturing as well. We'll never know. 
Um, so these are all things that we now know there is some smoke there, uh, certainly to talk about that. You talk about failure to secure informed consent. Well, what does that mean? By definition, anyone coming in, don't they have informed consent? What does that, what does that mean? Yeah, the, in order to participate in a study, you had to sign an informed consent form. The informed consent form was, was pretty long, 20-plus um, pages, if I'm, I'm remembering correctly. That is, that is something that you, as, as the coordinator, make sure that the patient is, is you know, fully, fully informed about their decision to participate in a clinical trial. The sites were, were so busy, so understaffed, that it was really um, the job of the marketing team to, and, and this was kind of like a call center, to explain the ins and outs of the study, um, the, you know, the study visits, explain those to the patients so that when they came to Ventavia, they were ready to go. So these patients got to the, got to the study site, they were brought to um, an exam room, given the informed consent form and their place to sign. That was one of the first, one of the, one of the things I noticed on the first day, I had to step in on an informed consent that was being given to a participant because it was literally like, this is the study. This is how many times you're going to be here. Just very quick overview of the study. And the coordinator, you know, handed the patient the, the pages that were supposed to be signed. And, and I had to intervene and go over the, con the consent form with this patient in detail. And that took me about two hours to do. Wow. It was, it oh was my. taking, yes. I mean, this is. <clears throat> but a trial you know, is a trial. I mean, that's, a trial that's the point a trial, of it. And that is not uncommon. I mean, that, I, you know, back when so I worked in, in, in transplant studies, I mean, sometimes these informed consent processes took days. I mean, the, the, yep. you're talking about a novel virus, a novel vaccine, um, you know, a, a mobile app or a provision device to capture your, your, you know, solicited adverse events. I mean, if you've never done a study before and you <clears throat> are unfamiliar with with how they how they're designed and how they work as a patient, it's going to take you a, a little bit of time to understand that. And again, they were just so interested in, in enrolling more and more and getting these patients in and out that they just had them sign. <clears throat> Hundreds, Daniel, of patients were in, improperly consented. And uh, when I, that's, that's one of the things that I found when, when going through all of, all of these charts was missing signatures on informed consents, missing dates. I would flag those for um, discussion. Uh, you know, there were so many things at, at this point, like my, my management team was like, okay, Brooke, you're just going to have to put this stuff on a list because we are just so overwhelmed right now. Just put it on a list. If you find something, put it on a list. So, I, so I understand that. I, I mean, I don't agree with <clears> it, but I'm just saying I, you could say, oh, it's minor, whatever. Okay. But, but the other stuff you're saying is, is a big deal, right? When you're saying that you had employees en en enrolled, um, you know, fabrication, falsification of the data, um, you know, the, they weren't administering the right needles, the right things. You bring this up. So, what happened during that month of September there when you bring it up eventually leading to your termination? Um, describe a little bit your your interaction with the Ventavia management, Pfizer, and, and government agencies. Yeah, so just, just to finish my thought on the informed consent, oh, sure. you know, I would flag I would flag these um these missing signatures, these missing dates. And the next time that I opened up that chart. 
that signature would all of a sudden be there. And oh. I knew, I knew that <laughs> in the time that I, that I, I found the, you know, the signature missing and the time that the signature magically appeared, there was no way for that subject to have had time to come, come back into the clinic. So when these were being found, these, these flags that I was putting in these charts, they would just fabricate the signature. I mean, I have, I have documentation of that too, where I, I'm not the only one that's finding that there are mismatch in signatures. It wasn't just me that was, that was finding these problems at Ventavia. It was others as well. So the amount of smoke that you're witnessing, you know, any logical person could understand there's got to be a lot of fire there. And I think what you're demonstrating on a granular level is that if you take a 30,000 foot view of all this, there was nothing stopping them from just straight up making stuff up. And, and, and it was very clear that the fix was in. And I've said this in politics for years. The fix is in politically. When the system wants something, the system gets it. And that's, that's true in every sphere. And it was quite clear there was it was the outcome was never in contention. They will get their thing approved by a rough certain window in time they had towards the end of 2020. They knew they were going to get it. Nothing mattered, no matter how complicated that is. And I think it's important for people to know. A lot of people think, how could you develop a vaccine so quickly? Well, that that's one question. The scientific side, and my you know my personal view is, I think it was in development. Uh, at some level long before the virus allegedly existed. Mm. But putting mm -hmm. that aside, even if you magically produce it in three minutes, but you, what you're explaining is just the notion that you could have a safe, effective human phase three clinical trial, even putting aside everything that preceded the animals, the phase one, phase two, which was truncated and merged, which is a whole nother story. But the phase three, that's a big deal. If you want a large sample size, do it properly. That doesn't happen overnight. I mean, you could have the thing in your hand, you produced it, it's there. But a, a trial like that and a novel drug, it takes a long time. Um, and I want our audience to just think about everything else that has been done and been said about every other facet of COVID and its treatment and its restrictions, and whether it's masks, whether it's the shots, whether it's therapeutics, uh, the ones that they're both the ones that they're choosing, Paxlovid, Molnupiravir, Remdesivir, and the ones that they don't like, like the existing um, repurposed off-label drugs that have already been proven to be safe. Mm -hmm. They will get any result they want. I mean that that's what's clear. You could you could now see this in reverse. If they want to sponsor in the background, they won't tell anyone, but kind of in the background sponsor a study to put a hit on something like ivermectin, they'll make sure to get, you know, inconclusive results, underpower it and play games with it. And uh, if they start seeing great success, find a way to cover it, in which we, we talked about that earlier this week in a recent JAMA study. So it demonstrates that everything you see from the system, if there is a political desire behind it, if there's money to be made, Pfizer's got to make the money. Ventavia, in order for them to make the money, they got to make Pfizer happy, right? So it goes down the chain. Um, this is not your purview, but whoever did the animal studies, you know, those are separate subcontractors. I'm sure they were under the same pressure. Um, and it goes up and down the system. So this is kind of a synopsis of your allegations, what you're presenting in federal court. Um, what happened? What did they do with it? And what led to your termination? Yeah, so that that 
enrollment pause that 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 time that you know all hands on deck let's let's go through these charts let's let's find out what what we have going on but let's not tell Pfizer and I got I have a text message from the managing uh, one of the managing members at Ventavia that says you know I'll just kind of paraphrase here but basically don't don't tell Pfizer that we're we're pausing the study for this reason. Let's let's actually tell them that we're in the perfect place. We are and have met our bandwidth with the upcoming study visits and you know just the things on our plate right now. We're just going to take a, a quick a quick pause. So when I saw, I was I was excited, you know, in in the beginning when they paused. I was like, okay, they're taking me seriously. This is you know, these patients are are. Are, are gonna finally like be given the attention and we're gonna we're gonna find out exactly where we are and what we've done wrong and, and we're gonna have to make it better so I was but when I saw that text message come through I I was just gutted really um they were they were just working at that point. Okay, we're gonna pause it, but in, during that pause, we're gonna clean it up so we don't get in trouble. We're not gonna tell Pfizer. Um, <clears throat> when I saw that, I really just again, I was just I was just deflated. And from really the seventeenth was the seventh. I think the seventeenth was a Thursday or a Friday. But really, at that point, I was just done. I, I knew what Bentavia was doing. And I, I, I did not want to be complicit in their scheme uh, to, to hide what they'd done and cover up their, their fraud. And as a matter of fact, on the 21st of September, I got a call, uh, in, excuse me, an invitation to join a call. Um, and the title of that call was COVID-1001 cleanup call. And 1001 is, is the last four digits of Pfizer's protocol number, which is c 45 excuse me, C4591001. So they wanted to have a call to discuss more ways of, of cleaning this up. I was in, you know, a couple of, of meetings to, to discuss this. And I just, at that point, Ventavia's attitude really changed from, Brooke, thank you. We're so glad you're here. Um, everybody needs to be thinking like Brooke, who's thinking from, you know, the perspective of, of, a, of an auditor and, and a clinical trial audit that we know um, it, it is coming um, <clears throat> so it really changed their attitude towards me changed when, when I declined that, that cleanup call. And from, from that day on, I just felt just, again, their, their just attitude was, was different. And on the 24th of September, I was called into a meeting to discuss, uh, the pictures that I had taken of the biohazard, the <clears throat> unblinding, the vaccine that was just left out. I took pictures one night of, of, of the things, you know, kind of that, that I discussed earlier. Um, and patient information just being posted on a whiteboard. I took these pictures and I took them not to, you know, do anything other than show my managers what I had found in clinic one evening. And so this meeting on the 24th, you know, I, I felt interrogated. I record the entire. I recorded the entire call. It's almost an hour long, but you can hear the my direct boss, the director of operations, 
and the director of, of quality control and, and quality assurance in this meeting. And my manager was attacking my, my integrity and asking me what my intentions were in taking these pictures. And I mean, again, I, I'm, I'm crying and I, sometimes in this video, I mean, or in this audio, I can, I can barely understand what I'm saying. Cause I'm so upset, but I, I'm telling them, you do not understand. And the, the QA director actually interrupts and he was like, Oh, I understand. There are so many problems that we were unable to, to, to quantify exactly, you know, what those are. We don't even know because we haven't even had a chance to really dig in and look. I mean, we're talking about 1200 patients at this point and just, you know, less than 25 employees. So after, after that meeting on the 24th, that, that night, I, I went home and talked to my husband and we made the decision that that morning, uh, that next morning that I was going to contact the FDA. So I did that. I called them directly and was directed to their website where I filed my complaint. I think in the complaint, I listed 14 different, <clears throat> different um, concerns that I had that were just on the top of my head. But my, my email starts with, it, it is without hesitation that I'm reporting sa- patient safety concerns. And that's what this is all about for me. Um, you know, these patients are people, they matter. And like I, like I said earlier, they're in danger. This clinical trial site is, is operating um, beyond their scope. And, and we have no reason to believe other sites are different. And, and I think some of the politics and logistics that clearly ruled the day where you are likely apply elsewhere. Obviously, you can't speak to that. Um, we're pretty much out of time, but I just want to fast forward to the here and now. What prompted you to come out over the last few months and just kind of w- where do things stand now? Have you ever been contacted by anyone in the ensuing year or so? I have, you know, the next, um, as soon as I filed that FDA complaint, a few hours later, I get a call from Ventavia and and they canned me. I was fired. And it, uh, six hours, six hours later, I was fired. So it made me, it made me think like, who, who was it Ventavia? Was it the FDA? I find it very, very coincidental that I make this complaint and then in just a few hours I'm fired. So I contacted an attorney, long story short, I ended up filing, um, a, a false claims act, a key TAM action against Ventavia icon and Pfizer. When doing that, the case immediately went under seal, meaning that I was ordered not to discuss the study. Mm. Um, I, I was misled and, you know, hindsight's 20, I wish I would have done so many things differently. I regret filing this action. I feel like if I would have. Cause that, that limited your ability to speak out. No, but it, it, the timeline yes. makes a lot of sense. It's, it's not like see other whistleblowers, they waited the questions. Why? And there's understandable reasons. You literally jumped on it the minute. I mean, this is a very short timeline. Um, I mean, you know, you were canned within three weeks there and uh, right after you filed it and you did the best thing is to file a lawsuit but the problem was this is more of a political battle 
yes. and it's got to get out to the public. So I think you're doing the right thing. We're unfortunately out of time, but I want to have you back again to revisit this. We're all going to put our minds together and see how we can get this out. But I think our audience hears it on your mind, on your heart. Um, you can't fake this. There's nothing to be benefited from. You're alleging very specific, verifiable things with with proof across a multitude of days and and people and all documented, recorded, visual, you know, audio. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's all in a federal lawsuit. Um, but unfortunately, I mean, I want people to understand it's not like we discovered April, May, June, July, whatever, you know, 2021 that there were problems. This was known from day one. And I want everyone to be clear about this. This is not Pfizer cancer because this is going to happen at some point. It's going to be like there's going to be an oops moment. We're, we're getting to that point. They can't cover it up anymore. It's not like, oh, we discovered something we didn't know. The problem was in the trials right away. And they, it was known there were problems. They knew this was a dangerous mechanism of action. They sought to cover it up. This was willfully done. Um, likely the hundreds of thousands of people that will wind up dying from, from the shot you know, could have all been avoided. This thing should have never been approved for anyone. Um, I don't care pandemic or no pandemic. It should have never, ever, ever been approved. Um, we should have pushed repurposed therapeutics that were working from day one and expanded upon that and done better research in that. Um, this is very clear. Again, that's not my commentary. That's my commentary. It's not what you're coming for. Um, is there any way you feel the audience could help you, any way they could follow you online? Uh, I'll, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, any anybody. I, 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 I sent a, a tweet just this morning. I, I need... I, I, I need help getting Ventavia to stop enrolling in these clinical trials. It's I don't have, you know, I'm not after Ventavia. I, except for, you know, what I'm seeing is so damning and these people are in danger and I don't know who else to contact. I've tried to reach out to the FDA and tell them what was going on. The DOJ HHS. Oh, I, I mean, I have contacted anybody and everybody that I know to, to, to help. And I don't know who, who else to contact. I have so much data to go through, um, just loads of it. And some I'm, I'm going to need help, you know, from a physician, a medical doctor, a specialist. Um, I'm looking at hepatic injury in a clinical trial patient right now. Um, I used to work in, in liver transplant, but a lot of the things I need help with. Um, so to reach me, I, I'm on Twitter. I have Getter that I just set up recently, but my handle is I am Brooke Jackson. Um, so if anybody has, you know, a way, a way to help me, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm about to get my, this website, up and and running so I can share this document with everyone. It's hard because you have so many, you know, you're so limited on on Twitter, and I'm afraid, you know, that that I'll be I'll be censored or my I'll go sure. to Twitter jail or whatever it's called. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm just I need I need help. I am Brooke Jackson on Twitter. We will certainly help out with with the doctor side of this. Um, 
you know, make sure we get the best minds. We have some pretty good guys in the group. What we don't have is political and legal help that much. The doctor side, we actually do have a lot of good guys, so to at least parse this out. And then the question is how to present it and how to make a difference. In a sane world, we would have an entire, well, we'd have both political parties, but at least the opposition would do it. Um, but we don't. They, they they literally don't care. I mean, um, people should have jumped on your story. Every governor, every senator, they want to know. I'm <laughs> distributing this throughout my state. The governor of Texas, Greg Abbott. I mean, this happened every, in Texas. Every. Have you reached out to Greg Abbott? Absolutely. Ken Paxton, the attorney general? Absolutely. 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 Unbelievable. Um, and this has been, I, I mean, we're talking September of 2020. To now, I've I'm just I've exa- I feel like I've exhausted, you know, all my contacts, which are not very many. So that's I think that you know your audience, wow. you know Daniel, your reach. I mean, I have the data in my hand. I'm I'm scared to hold it, you know. I, I'm I'm afraid. I don't I don't I don't blame you. Um, you know, you, I hate to be morbid here. It kind of reminds me of a movie and I can't remember where, but I mean, there's a lot of this stuff throughout history of movies. You know, this woman's running away from bad guys and finds a police officer. Like, oh my gosh, so happy. And the police officer, you know, attacks her because there's a corrupt town. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you go to the FDA. <laughs> well, that's like going to Pfizer. I mean, th- and that's what's so sad. And that's what people need. I started off the, the broadcast like this. This is absolutely a time where the system is irremediably corrupt. And that's that's the problem, and we need to rebuild this. This is not just a, retrospectively. This is going on in the future. You said there's 40 more clinical trials they're they're working on, uh, just this subcontractor alone. Um, but we got to end it here. Thanks for coming forward. Thanks for spending time with us. Uh, we have a very smart, dedicated, passionate, patriotic. Uh, audience that cares that believes in doing what's right we're going to put our minds together we're going to get this done uh thank you brooke and folks we are out of time till tomorrow god bless y'all and thank you for listening